This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Coronavirus changed forever. Presented by Balance of Nature. Welcome to the CBS special Coronavirus Changed Forever. I'm Gil Gross. At times such as these, charities are a major resource as Americans reach out to help those in need. But the question is... Is that going on as it has so often in the past? For one thing, many Americans suddenly find themselves unemployed or furloughed, so it's hard to be in a giving mood. And the political mood and the back-and-forth charges over a situation that in the past would have had us pulling together is pulling many Americans apart. Brian Gallagher is president and CEO of United Way Worldwide, the largest all-privately funded charity, and it's playing a large part in the battle against COVID-19. Brian, good to talk to you. How are you? I'm good, Gil. Thanks for having me. First, what are some of the things that United Way is doing in this fight? So basically, it's three things. Uh, One of the things that people won't really think of is we lead a network called 211. It's a three-digit dial-up similar to 911 except it's for non-emergency calls. It's um, 95% of Americans have access to it. So you call or text when you need help. Uh, we're now taking 75,000 calls a day. And initially in the hotspots, it was about uh, health, health issues. Uh, should I get tested? I don't have a medical home. I don't have a primary doctor. I don't have an insurance. And now it's uh, moved to economic crisis um, and distress. I lost my job. I need help with rent, utilities, food. Um, and so we're taking those calls and directing them to exactly where they can get help. Secondly, we've set up over 500 funds to raise money for basic need. Again, food, shelter, um, utility help across the United States. Uh, we're also helping small nonprofits stay in business. Um, in fact, there are 12 million people who work for nonprofits. We're five and a half percent of uh, national GDP as a nonprofit sector. We've got to keep those folks in business. And finally, we're working a lot with uh, lawmakers on Capitol Hill and governor's offices and state legislatures to make sure that um, those that are most vulnerable are getting some of the funding as it gets released and appropriated by by Congress. This brings up some unique situations, because usually when we're dealing with a charitable effort in a crisis, the crisis is somewhat more local. Even 911, for instance, you know, it was New York, Washington, part of Pennsylvania, Katrina was the Gulf Coast area and so on. This is national. Things are spread out. It means that people who might usually be giving from one part of the country to help another may not be in that position because everyone is being affected. And how does that affect what you do? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I, I've described this situation. I've been in this job a long time. I've been either the national president or the global president at United Way for now 18 years. So I came in uh, right after 9-11. I went through Katrina. I went through the hurricanes in South Florida. I went through the tsunami in South Asia. And you're right. Um, these kind of disasters are usually localized. It's like a slow-moving hurricane hitting every community at the same time. And what's happening is Americans are responding uh, as they do in those disasters. The giving is immediate. uh, It's heartfelt. uh, It's going directly to need. 
those nonprofits that are larger versus smaller, those that are more digital than analog are doing better. Uh, we're, we've raised about $400 million worldwide now, about $250 million in the U.S. We've turned all of our fundraising and our support effort to uh, the COVID crisis, first the health crisis and now the economic crisis. But I think what we're going to, and, and we've used innovative approaches. We're getting contributions as we have from corporations, from large foundations, from wealthy individuals. But we're also doing a lot of on, online fundraising. We hosted something called Hope From Home uh, about a week ago where we worked with YouTube, uh, YouTube personalities and gamers and, and raised about $2 million from 60,000 people in 130 countries. So we're getting very innovative, but it's going to be the smaller nonprofits that are working in all of our communities, just like after 9-11, that are going to get hurt the most. And, um, and we're also going to hit just like um, we do in natural disasters. I don't, I don't like the term giving fatigue. But you get to a point where the giving just isn't as robust as it is in the first three or four weeks. We have, you know, this response and recovery is going to be months and years and the giving happens in weeks. And that's going to be a big challenge for a lot of nonprofits. There's an interesting issue here we usually don't face. But of course, this is an election year and everyone's so politically divided and obsessed with laying blame for one side or the other that everything has a political consequence. So it's the sense of many, we're not pulling together in the way that we did on 9-11 or Katrina, even going back to World War II. Is that your sense of it? You know, it's it's my biggest concern, to be honest with you. Um, and it's not it's not just happening today. Over the last, I would say, 20 years in, in the U.S., we've systematically carved out the economic middle of the country. Then we carved out the political middle. And now we've car- we're carving out the cultural middle. Uh, I, I think by I think fundamentally extreme positions, political and cultural positions on both the right and the left are crushing the soul of, of the country. Um, solutions are found in the middle. Most Americans are moderate. Most Americans are pragmatic. And yet the narrative and the debates and the in the media and um, it, the, the shrill is coming from the, the polar opposites. And that's not the way communities work. And yet that's what our political leaders and others are um, kind of confronting us with. And what is required right now is not not so much in the immediate response, because Congress has done its job in a bipartisan way. The the support and response to frontline healthcare workers has been amazing. But the recovery uh, is going to have to be bipartisan, much more nonpolitical, much more community-based. And right now you can see that the fragility of the country culturally uh, is a problem. And it's going to take pulling together, as you say, to, uh, to rebuild our communities. And, and I'd go back and say it, um, we've allowed political and cultural extremes to crush us in terms of uh, who we are and the soul of the country. And if we're going to rebuild after this, and we've got an opportunity not to go back to normal, because back to normal wasn't great for a lot of people, but to build new systems, new approaches. But that's going to take kind of bottom up because I, I've lost confidence that um, political leaders um, and extremists on both sides are going to get us there. Uh, people are going to have to take this back on their own. Finally, Brian, United Way works worldwide, and there's been concern that nationalism in countries all around the world is lessening cooperation at a time that we really need it in a worldwide crisis. What are you saying? You know, it's even before the crisis, unfortunate. You know, I, I travel, I'm on the road 160 nights a year. I've been to China 25 times probably. 
I'm in Asia, a lot of them in South America, Latin America, a lot of them in Eastern and, and Central Europe and Europe. And nationalism was on the rise before this. Um, you know, the, the global economy and the globalization of the economy has clearly been unequal, as most marketplaces are. And um, I think, again, certain political leaders across the world have taken advantage of that politically. So the, the um, nationalism was already there. Um, but what I would say is that we, we will probably get much smarter about sourcing certain things within countries. But we, you know, there are great people and really good leaders all over the world in all of those countries I just mentioned, all those regions I just mentioned. Um, there's, there will be another pandemic. Um, and the idea that we're going to be able to manage these kind of pandemics or these kind of crises con country by country is fantasy. It's just fantasy. We're, we are much better to be able to cooperate, um, isolate, track, um, be able to cooperate on vaccines, be able to cooperate on care. Um, but there is, um, you know, it is a concern of mine. You know, history repeats itself. Um, we have the largest income gap in the United States since the 1920s. We started, um, we started curbing migration into the U.S. in the 19, just before the 1920s because we were afraid that we were starting to not look like America. That was followed by a Great Depression, followed by a world war, and there was nationalism and tribalism all over the world. We have got to, we have got to face up to the fact that uh, we are a global community and we can't like pull inside our national borders and, and believe that uh, we can keep all problems away. Our solutions are in, are in cooperation, not in separation, but it is the human instinct is to protect your own. And, uh, and it's gonna take real leadership uh, political, business, uh, nonprofit to essentially say, let's not go back to normal because normal was taking us down a path that was not going to be good for the world. Let's create a new normal that's more integrated, more equal. Um, let's give up a little short-term profit for broader human success. Uh, let's stop being so focused on making sure our systems succeed and people and and people fail. Let's be let's be focused on people succeeding all over the world. And then we'll get back to, um, I think, global growth that's more equal. But but um, uh, it starts with defining success in a way that that people live their lives. And as much as we may want to believe that life begins and ends at um, a state border or a country border, it just does not. Brian Gallagher is president and CEO of United Way. Brian, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Gil. You're listening to the CBS special Coronavirus Changed Forever. Welcome back to the CBS special, Coronavirus Changed Forever. I'm Gil Gross. We are hearing so much conflicting information about the development of a novel coronavirus vaccine that all many of us can make out from all the things being said is that a vaccine will be ready sometime between Tuesday and never. The standard answer is 12 to 18 months, but we've been hearing that for three months now. So one would think if it had any meaning at all, it would be down to 9 to 15 months. So let's try and separate hopefulness from reality and talk to somebody who knows what's going on. Dr. Peter Hotez is Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine and co-director of Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development, where he is, in fact, developing a coronavirus vaccine. Dr. Hotez, welcome. How are you doing? Uh, good, thank you. Not sleeping much, trying to get our vaccine into clinical trials, but um, but uh, and then raising money for it at the same time. So that's also an interesting sub subline of all of this. Before we get to vaccine development, 
Let's get to why battling this particular virus is different. Back when we battled SARS, people seemed to get very, very sick, but we did not have this kind of spread. So what's different here? Yeah, what's different is there's a subset of people as maybe as many as 20, some say 50 percent who are walking around with this virus with very low grade or even absent symptoms. And this is why the virus is spreading across the world so aggressively. So the first two big coronavirus epidemics, pandemics from SARS, uh, which is called severe acute respiratory syndrome and MERS, Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome, you know, did not infect more than a few thousand people because if you were, you had it, you were feeling awful and you were going right to the hospital. But this one is, is a bit diabolical. You got a significant percentage of the population without symptoms walking around and then a significant percentage getting very sick and going into intensive care units. And that combination creates the perfect storm and why we're in the situation we are today. So basically, we have a lot of people who feel fine, like they don't have anything, but they're walking around unknowingly shedding virus onto people who are getting sick, which I guess is one of the reasons why staying at home has been somewhat effective and I guess necessary here. Yeah, you know, and and then in the absence of a vaccine, all we have are 14th century methods, which is when quarantine was invented back in the 1300s. So this is, and it's, of course, it's crushing our economy. So this is really uh, pressed for the urgency of developing a vaccine. And, And really, when you have a disease that's so transmissible and so many people walking around with it, if you can have a vaccine and vaccinate a large segment of the population, that may be one of our best hopes for ultimately containing this virus. Do we know why the virus is acting the way it is? Does it give us any clues to a vaccine? Why some people, especially kids, are not even getting ill? I mean, we seem to have some clues. There's uh, people with diabetes, uh, obesity, but then there are people who are walking around spreading virus they don't know they have. Is it genetic? Is it a matter of virus load? How many people you come into contact with who have virus, whether they're sick or not? Why are some people getting so sick and some not at all? Well, of course, this is a new virus pathogen. We don't know, but there's a few interesting observations that have been made. One is that this virus is replicating in very high amounts Uh, in the upper airways of people. So in what we call the nasopharynx, the nose, uh, the mouth, the throat. And so there's a lot of virus being shed even when people are speaking. And for SARS, the original SARS back in 2003, that did not really happen except in a small genetic subset of people. So that's one of the features of this unique virus is that you're getting all of that virus replication in the upper airway so that when you talk, you're actually shedding a lot of virus uh, or when, of course, when you cough or sneeze. And so that's made it really tough. And then there's another feature of the virus that it binds to a type of receptor that's uh, found in the lungs and in the heart. And that's causing a lot of severe heart disease and lung disease and in the, in the blood vessels. And that's why people are getting so sick. So it's that, so you can understand a lot about the disease by just uh, understanding what we call the viral pathogenesis, how, how the virus generates disease. So you're working on a vaccine yourself. What are the problems here? You mentioned at the top, even just collecting money, and I guess that's one of the obvious things, but also just that it not only works, but it doesn't have any nasty side effects. Yeah. So, you know, actually the 
the, the theoretical basis of making a vaccine against this virus is not terribly complicated. This is a, not nearly as complicated as, say, HIV AIDS or some other vaccine targets that have taken us decades to figure out. This, in some respects, it's relatively straightforward. We know the virus has, if you ever look at a cartoon of the virus and people have seen this, you see these little spikes sticking out of it. And that gives that corona-like effect when you see the, the crown-like effect when you see pictures of it. So that spike protein is what docks with host receptors in the lung and the heart and other tissues. And if you can make an immune response to the spike, you can actually make a vaccine. And that is the basis for most of the vaccines that are currently undergoing clinical trials. The problem is this, designing a vaccine is not very complicated. And there's at least a dozen different vaccines, some say up to 70, that will go into clinical trials, hopefully including ours. The problem is this, the clinical testing to show that the vaccine actually works, even if you've shown that it works in laboratory animals, and to make a vaccine that's safe, even if you've shown that it's safe in laboratory animals, still takes time. It's, it's hard to rush that. And that's the slow part. That's one of the major slow parts uh, of this. That's kind of the rate-limiting step. That's the bottleneck is taking adequate time to make, make certain that you're confident that you have a vaccine that actually works in people, so not just solving the mouse coronavirus problem, and to get one that we know is safe uh, for people because this is gonna potentially be used to immunize millions, even billions of people, and you don't wanna get that wrong. And that's what takes time, and that's what's the hardest to accelerate. There are other things we can move along pretty quickly. We could do things in parallel, like scaling up production, even if we know, we don't know if it's safe or effective, if we're willing to spend the money. But that's the part where people say a year to 18 months, which would actually be an incredibly fast timeline that would break all records because some say, some say the world's record for a vaccine is four years. So now to break that down to a year and 18 months would be pretty extraordinary. And, that's, and mostly that is because of the time it takes for safety testing and, and showing that it works. Is there extra pressure in the matter of safety, not just for the regular reasons? Of course, you don't want to hurt anybody. But over the last several years, we've had this anti-vaccine movement, and we've seen that multiply. One of the reasons we have so many flu deaths in the United States is such a high percentage of those flu fatalities are people who did not get inexpensive flu shots. So I imagine there's got to be some fear here that if you come up with a vaccine that causes any bad side effects at all, it may not only fail, but may cause people to back away from other vaccines they really need. So the stakes are higher here than they were, say, 10, 20 years ago. Yeah. And and the anti-vaccine lobby has gotten better funded. Uh, they have greater bandwidth. They're all over social media and they're very aggressive. And even before coronavirus, I've had to deal with them a lot because I'm a big advocate and proponent of vaccines. And I actually have a, I have a, my, I have four adult kids and one, my youngest daughter, Rachel, who's an adult, has autism and other intellectual disabilities. And I wrote this book called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism, because that's one of the major things that the anti-vaxxers allege, that vaccines cause autism, even though it clearly does not. So uh, that's put me in their crosshairs. And so you can imagine now that I'm developing coronavirus vaccines, it's the perfect conspiracy for them. They're saying I made the coronavirus uh, or I did it jointly with Bill Gates in a secret lab. One of the problems that you mentioned is we don't 
want to just cure coronavirus in mice. And one of the problems, some of the vaccines that we're hearing the most about, the nucleic acid vaccines, especially the RNA vaccines, is theoretically they're fabulous. And in the past, they've cured mice of all kinds of things, but they haven't done much for humans yet. I don't even think there's an RNA vaccine that's actually been marketed yet. Yeah, that's that's correct. There's not been any RNA or DNA vaccines that's reached licensure, and you actually hit it. I mean, it's in the, historically, they've worked well in laboratory animals, but we've not been able to reproduce those same effective immune responses in people. Now, there's a couple of uh, new biotechs out there that are saying they've solved this problem, and those vaccines are now in clinical trials. So maybe that's the case. So in the meantime, I think the approach is to test as many different vaccine technologies as you can to achieve all the same effect, to block the binding of the virus to its receptor. So what you're seeing is RNA and DNA vaccines in clinical trials. We have our vaccine, which is a more established technology, the same one used to make re- recombinant hepatitis B vaccine. And, and there's going to be at least several others beyond that. And the reason for it is the likelihood of any single vaccine making it to the finish line is small. And some in the industry say it's only one in 10 will actually make it. So if you really want to accelerate a timeline and get to 12 to 18 months, you want to get at least a couple of dozen vaccine candidates out there in the hopes that at the end of all of this time, you'll have one or two or even three that actually work and, and you know are safe as the, as the other ones drop out. And I think that's kind of the strategy. If, you know, if you think about it, it's a bit like, uh, you know, having um, Deshaun Watson on the Texans and some from Houston, having all the receivers go into the end zone at the same time and throwing the ball up. And the more receivers you have down in the end zone, the more likelihood one of them will have a catch. We'll have more about the race for one or several vaccines with Dr. Peter Hotez coming up. This is Coronavirus, changed forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to Coronavirus, changed forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking with vaccine developer Dr. Peter Hotez about the race to develop a vaccine or possibly vaccines to fight COVID-19. And one of the things that we've been talking about is how many different vaccines are being developed and whether they might be needed. Dr. Hotez, are we looking for one vaccine with all these different groups having all these different reactions? I mean, not just because the more vaccines, the better chance we have of getting one that works, but with all of these people suffering in different ways, the people who are older, the obese, people with diabetes, young people who may have a genetic predisposition, are we possibly looking at the need for many different vaccines? You very well might. And so, for instance, you might have one vaccine that works better in older individuals. And we know certain older individuals are at risk. So, And we have vaccines like Shingrix uh, for shingles or the pneumococcal vaccine that we use for older individuals. So maybe one of them will, will be better for that population or a different one might be better for uh, for people with underlying chronic conditions such as diabetes or hypertension, or maybe there's a third vaccine that uh, works faster and could be used to rapidly immunize healthcare professionals or first-line responders. Maybe there's one that you want to use for younger adults or even a pediatric vaccine. So, so yes, apps, and we we have precedent for that. We have different vaccines for what we call different indications, and that is a very likely scenario. We also may have a vaccine 
that's more suitable for low and middle income countries for global health because you need one that's very inexpensive that could be scaled locally. So, and we're also looking at that possibility. So that's right. It may be that you have uh, multiple vaccines out there. So I think we have to get out of this. You know, I think we're in, we're sort of in this mindset that doesn't really reflect reality that goes back to when the, the salt polio vaccine uh, was rolled out that, you know, there was this, this tested and everybody met it at the university of Michigan auditorium at a certain time and date and all the press was there. And it was like uh, revealing the wizard of Oz. And all of a sudden you had the result and everybody popped the champagne and, and the reality is it's probably not going to work like that. Things will roll out slowly. We'll get more information and we'll find that different vaccines may have different benefits for different populations. Too many people now making decisions about how to open up the country is based on this false notion that we just hunkered down for a year and all of a sudden there's a, there's a vaccine at the bottom of the rainbow. And as I said, it's not going to work that way. And we have to roll out realistic plans for how we do uh, recovery from COVID-19, not only from the economic standpoint, but also from the public health point of view. And we're going to have to have at least two sets of plans, one with and one without a vaccine, because we really don't know how quickly we'll have a vaccine. I mean, the one year to 18 month timeframe is an aspirational goal. And and I'm, you know, we're working day and night to try to meet that. I wake up at four in the morning and I text my colleagues and uh, and I find that my colleagues have already been texting me at three in the morning. And we're, you know, we're all we're all worried. We're all we all want to do the right thing. We all want to get this vaccine accelerated, but we don't want to be reckless about it either. And and I th and the good news is we've got great oversight in the United States through the FDA and their branch called CBER and CDC. So they'll they'll do the right thing. So say we get a vaccine. How do we do this, especially if there's limited quantities at first? Do we start with first responders because they get the greatest virus load from contact with so many sick people, then maybe pregnant women, older people, people with pre-existing conditions and so on? Or is it going to get just rolled out all over the place? In other words, is there a better way of doing this when we actually get a vaccine? Yeah, I mean, we'll have to look at, first of all, what type of vaccine has been made, you know, something like ours which uses an old established technology and you can make a lot of it, there would be no need to ration, right? You could open it up pretty quickly. Others might use a more complicated technology and you might be able to only make limited amounts and you're going to have to make tough decisions on who, who gets the vaccine first. And of course, the other thing we're worried about is uh, I don't want to see a vaccine made only for North America and Europe. And, you know, as this virus goes through the urban slums of uh, of Mumbai and Calcutta and Lagos and Sao Paulo, those people get the short end of the deal. That's happened too much historically. So that's going to be important too. So ensuring equity is going to be very important. I, and that's why I talk to colleagues, you know, who are good bioethicists, people like Art Kaplan, I talk to a lot, you know, to make certain that we don't make, that we don't repeat tragic mistakes that have been done in the past. Dr. Peter Hotez is Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine, co-director of Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development, and is, in fact, working on a coronavirus. And we'll let you get back to that. Dr. Hotez, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for all the great questions and interview. I appreciate it.
This is the CBS special, Coronavirus Changed Forever. Welcome back to the CBS special, Coronavirus Changed Forever. I'm Gil Gross. As the coronavirus crisis stretches out and the financial pain deepens, many Americans are wondering how they're going to pay their bills and what will happen to them and their credit if they don't. Joining us with answers about your job, your home, your car, and more is Washington Post consumer columnist Elizabeth Leamy. Elizabeth, as a longtime consumer advocate, let's start with your overarching advice during this tough time. You know, it's easy to sit at home like we all are and let nightmare scenarios swirl around in your head and overwhelm you. But I personally find concrete information comforting. So I suggest everybody take a deep breath, get the facts, and then you'll know what you actually need to do financially. And let's get to those in a moment, because of course that's important. If you can't pay your bills because you're unemployed, your credit score could eventually go down anyhow. So let's talk about the things that are supposed to make up for that paycheck. That means talking about unemployment insurance. Many people are out of work right now, more than at any time since the Great Depression. That's the bad news. You say there's a spot of good news regarding unemployment. No, I'm happy to say not all, not at all. The good news is credit scores do not take into account whether you have a job or how much money you make. So just losing your job will not affect your score at all. Credit scores are based on whether you pay your bills. And there are all sorts of special COVID-19 programs to help people who are unable to pay their bills. Well, speaking of job loss, let's talk about unemployment insurance. Many people are out of work, more people than at any time since the Great Depression. So there's the bad news. But you say there's one spot of good news regarding unemployment. Yes. Many state governments have done away with some of the usual hoops that they make citizens jump through to get those unemployment benefits. Most notably, many, maybe most, are not requiring people to submit proof that they are actively looking for a job. That makes good sense in normal times, but right now there are hardly any jobs available to apply for since many industries have been shut down. So this is really welcome news. Well, what kind of help is there, Elizabeth, for people who don't qualify for traditional unemployment? This is a huge problem that the government is trying to address. Only actual employees qualify for unemployment traditionally. One clue for those out there wondering, if you receive a W-2 at tax time, you are probably a full-fledged employee. But in the so-called gig economy, millions of workers are independent contractors who receive 1099s instead of W-2s. Those folks are not eligible for traditional unemployment. And in fact, even some people who do receive a W-2 are not eligible for unemployment if their employer does not pay into the unemployment insurance system. I got an example for you. I heard from a woman who works for a Christian school watching kids during its aftercare program. Because it's a religious school, it's not required to pay into the unemployment insurance system. So when she was furloughed, she was shocked to learn she would not get unemployment. However, Congress has tried to address all of these less traditional workers with a part of the CARES Act called the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Assistance Program, or PUA. This program extends unemployment payments to freelancers, independent contractors, self-employed people who are not usually eligible. I advise everyone to be patient, though, since this is new and the need is enormous. 
there are huge backups in getting people this assistance, but it does exist. And that's the good news. All right. So let's go through the bills now and let's tackle the biggest bill of all your mortgage. What if you just can't afford to pay it right now? Okay, so once again, in a very gloomy climate, there is good news. More than 60% of mortgages are backed by various federal departments. And the CARES Act gives people with those types of mortgages powerful protections. I'm talking about FHA, HUD, USDA, and VA loans, plus any mortgages owned by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. If you have one of those, you can ask for six months of what's called mortgage forbearance. Now, forbearance does not forgive your loan, but it means you can temporarily stop paying it. And if you need it, the law says if you have one of those federally backed loans, you can apply for another six months of forbearance after that. During this time, the bank is required to report to the credit bureaus that you are current on your mortgage. That's this new law. So your credit score will not be impacted. All right. So that's 60%. That's a good chunk. But that other chunk, 40%, is pretty big also. What about those homeowners whose mortgage is with a private bank? Well, several states now have stepped in from California to Connecticut, coast to coast, and cut deals with private banks to give homeowners 90-day grace periods and to suspend foreclosures. Plus, many banks on their own have come up with programs to defer customers' payments. I looked up a bunch of websites yesterday. 60 to 180 days is typical. Programs vary, but you either have to pay the amount you owe at the end of the grace period or oftentimes they tack the payments on to the end of your mortgage, which I prefer. Many banks have also vowed not to charge fees or report customers' accounts as delinquent during this crisis. Now, people should go to their bank's website to get the details because every program at every private bank is different, and you need to apply for this help. It's not automatic, and the best way to do that is online because phone lines are jammed. So we've left out a third of Americans who rent their homes. We obviously don't want to leave them out. So what help is there for them? There's help for them, too. So landlords with any of those federally-backed mortgages I mentioned before are not allowed to evict tenants for 120 days. And the same goes for public housing. No evictions for 120 days. Plus, at least 34 states have taken action to help renters. Banning evictions for weeks or for the duration of the state of emergency and either for all renters or for those directly affected by COVID-19. People just need to Google it to figure out what their state has done for them. Plus, I would like to point out, renters have a lot of leverage right now. It's not like landlords can easily get another tenant to take your place. So this is a great time to negotiate. After the rent, after the mortgage, for most people, their car is their second biggest bill. What help is there for car owners? Many of the same banks, also credit unions, have offered to let customers defer, that the same ones that have offered to let them defer mortgage payments have also put programs in place for those who can't afford their car payments right now. Once again, you need to go to your specific bank's website and check because oftentimes they're going to give you a you know, hefty grace period, which is really helpful. 
Car insurance is another big bill, and all of the major insurance companies I checked have some sort of assistance in place for auto and also life and homeowners insurance, by the way. Some ask that you contact your agent who will help out on a case-by-case basis. Others are offering special payment plans or extra time to pay. And I personally was amazed to receive an email from my auto insurer that they are reducing our auto insurance rates for this time period because they recognize that most people aren't driving anywhere. I mean, our battery in our car died because we haven't gone anywhere. It's true. My car is just sitting in the driveway, you know, take it out once a week for groceries. Other than that, working from home, as so many people are who are able to work from home. And let's circle back to homes. Let's talk about the utility bill. Okay, sure. So 25 states and the District of Columbia, where I live, have forbidden gas and electric companies from disconnecting customers during this crisis. And at least a dozen big utilities had already vowed not to do so anyway. Some power companies have also promised not to charge any late fees. And this was an interesting one. The state of Wisconsin even mandated that utilities should reconnect people who had previously been disconnected before this crisis because, of course, citizens have been ordered to stay home. So they need those utilities. Thank you, Elizabeth. Elizabeth Leamy is Washington Post consumer columnist and also has a lot more information about things like unclaimed money at Leamy, L-E-A-M-Y dot com. You're listening to Coronavirus, Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to Coronavirus, Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. One of the most tragic tales of this epidemic has been the devastation of the nation's nursing homes and senior care facilities. In Sussex County, New Jersey, Anita Brown got a call about her 76-year-old mother who has been at a long-term care facility. They called us last night and um, they told us that she had a 104 fever and that she had low oxygen and they, w- they weren't going to send her to the hospital. Police showed up after Andover subacute care and rehab called for 25 body bags. Police found 18 bodies, including one in a shed. And though the facility claims it is fully staffed, when Anita Brown calls to get an update on her mom, she can't get an answer. We would co- try to contact. We'd have to get the operator. they put us through the numbers. It would never even go to voicemail. we try, try, try. At least 70 people have died at that facility. 20% of deaths from COVID-19 that we know of have been at nursing homes and other such care facilities. Many people just don't know how their parents and spouses are doing. In Brumall, Pennsylvania, Angela Gallietti can at least see her father through a window, but it's been months since she's laid eyes on her mother. And every day we take turns going up to the window to cheer him up, you know, to, to check on him, to make sure he's being taken care of. Um, again, we're one of the lucky ones because uh, my dad has a window to his room. Unfortunately, my mom does not. I haven't seen her in two months. When people in these homes are dying, families can't be there. That happened to Alex Handley in New Jersey. The fact that she passed away, I can accept that. But the fact that I didn't get to say goodbye is still what's eating me up inside. Dr. Michael Wasserman is president of the California Association of Long-Term Care Medicine. He says we need to find buildings we can convert into facilities made to treat only seniors with COVID-19 to stop the spread. But that won't be easy because there are three times as many Americans in senior care facilities as there are in hospitals. What we need to avoid is literally turning nursing homes into our killing fields. If we push older adults out of hospitals and ICUs into nursing homes, 
that will be overwhelmed, in three to four weeks, the problem will be 10 times greater. Though many nursing home employees are bravely doing their jobs, and not always with the personal protective equipment they need, one Riverside, California home had to have 80 patients evacuated after nurses simply refused to show up. Pat McGinnis is with the California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform. She says Los Angeles has advised families to get loved ones out of care facilities. And that's much easier said than done. But most people can't. That's why somebody's in the skilled nursing care in the first place. The shortage of workers is now so bad, the CDC is allowing COVID-positive health workers to work at care facilities as a last resort. Unbelievable. The CDC is basically, in my opinion, saying, why bother? Sally Merritt Braziak had an 85-year-old mother who died in an upstate New York home. And though staff with the virus may go back inside, Sally could not go in, even with masks and gloves, to say goodbye. I would want to take her hand and tell her that it's okay to go and to think of the sunsets over Lake Ontario. Thank you for being my mom, and I'll miss you every day more and more. This has been Coronavirus, Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull, I'm Gil Gross. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.